He's saying, Lord, there's no other options. He knew that only Jesus Christ could take the sting out of sin. He knew that only Christ could take the gloom out of the grave and the pain out of parting. You alone have life. Lord, to whom should we go? It would be futility to go anywhere else. You've got the words. That's the reason for staying. And then he makes a remarkable statement. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. There's no doubt in our minds. We have believed it. It's a done deal. And we know it. It's a word that means to know by personal experience that you are the Holy One of God. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Today is part three in the conclusion of Pastor Carl's sermon entitled, The Bread of Life Discourse, Part Four. We come to the conclusion today of our study in chapter six, and in particular, the Bread of Life Discourse of the Gospel of John. Let's join Pastor Carl now as he examines the defection among the condemned. Jesus said, therefore, to the twelve, You don't want to go away also, do you? His man had heard the same sermon. Now comes the dramatic moment where he confronts the twelve. Now they've observed the reaction of the multitude, how they turned away. They observed the reaction of those who are called the Jews, that is the Pharisees, the leaders, and how angry they were at the Lord. And now he asks, do you want to go too? Now, the question in the original is formed in such a way that it expects a negative answer. But the Lord asks it not for his benefit, but for theirs. They needed to articulate a response much more than he needed to hear it. So Simon Peter answered. And he answers as a spokesman. Notice the plural pronoun we. Circle that in your Bible. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Now, the question is asked to all, but one responds, Peter, who is really a leader among leaders. I've heard more sermons than I want to hear on the stupidity of the apostle Peter. And really, those who give it are really showing their own ignorance because Peter was one of the most spiritually perceptive men of God that you'll read of in the entire New Testament. Yet he made some mistakes. But in the midst of walking with the Lord, he shows how perceptive he was. Remember, it was the night before this sermon. He was the only one who was willing to get out of the boat and to walk on the water as the synoptics teach. So he asked, Lord, to whom shall we go? There's no other alternatives. You alone have the words of eternal life. He may not have understood all that Jesus said in this discourse, but he picked up on the truth of verse 63, and he knew that Jesus' words were spirit and life. He had taken it at face value. He had grasped the metaphor of eating and drinking, and he had seized this inner truth. How about you this morning? Are you convinced that Christ alone can satisfy the depths of your heart? Oh, millions will hear of Jesus Christ this year, but they'll go back to Buddha and to Confucius and Muhammad and Krishna. Others have heard the claims of Christ, but they've turned to the socialistic teachings of 
of Darwin or Marx or Lenin, others to the philosophies of Plato, Philo, Aristotle, some to the proponents of humanism. They look for meaning in life and immorality and fame and fortune and riches. They exchange light for darkness, hope for despair, life for death, heaven for hell. But there's only one who can give us life. You have the words of eternal life. This is no idiot. He's saying, Lord, there's no other options. He knew that only Jesus Christ could take the sting out of sin. He knew that only Christ could take the gloom out of the grave and the pain out of parting. You alone have life. Lord, to whom should we go? It would be futility to go anywhere else. You've got the words. That's the reason for staying. And then he makes a remarkable statement. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. There's no doubt in our minds. We have believed it. It's a done deal. And we know it. It's a word that means to know by personal experience that you are the Holy One of God. And please note the order. First, there is the belief. And then there is the experience. You believe, and then you know it by experience. God's proof comes second. His offer that you must receive by faith comes first. And so he says, Lord, we've accepted the offer we believed, and we know it. You've proven yourself time and time and time again. Now listen, that's how God works. Now John, in his first letter, expounds on that just a little bit. You can turn there if you want to 1 John or... Just listen to some of these verses that I want to read. John shows first, cognitively, one must understand the gospel as he outlines for us in 1 John. Understanding always precedes conversion. But then you must do something with that understanding. It's not enough to know the plan of salvation. You must personally embrace the plan of salvation. And when you embrace the plan of salvation, you know by experience the reality of that salvation. For instance, in 1 John 5, verse 6, he's speaking of the Lord. He said, this is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not with water only, but with the water and with the blood. He's talking about the water and the blood that came out of the side of the Lord Jesus this is a portion of Scripture pregnant with truth. It's an exegetical minefield. I wish we could spend more time on it, but I want you to catch the key highlighted thoughts here. Verse 7, It is the Spirit who bears witness because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three witnesses. There, there are three that bear witness, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and the three are in agreement. And by the way, if you are here today, it's the Holy Spirit who convicts you first. He works because no man can come to the Father unless the Father draws him. That's why Jesus said when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. So it begins with the convicting work of the Spirit, but it ends with the convincing work of the Spirit. First, he convicts you when you come by faith. Then he convinces you when you're born from above. Look at verse 9. If we receive the witness of man, the witness of God is greater. For the witness of God is this, that he is born witness concerning his son. God, the Holy Spirit, wants to testify inwardly in your heart. Now listen, he says, follow his rationale. If we receive the witness of man, and it's a if, first class conditional statement, that means since we do, uh, and we do all the time, we take men at their witness and believe it each day. I ate in a restaurant yesterday, I had to trust the cook. I... Uh, 
flew on an airplane last night. I had uh, last, uh, last month, I had to trust the pilot. You read a map, you trust the map maker. If you receive the witness of men, and we do, if we can receive the witness of men, we ought to receive the witness of God because that witness is far greater. And let me just say to you, if you want to know Jesus Christ as your Savior this morning, ask the Holy Spirit to help you, for He is the helper. Now, you can resist Him, as they did in Acts 7, or you can yield to Him, you can refuse Him, or you can listen to Him. But if you want to know the Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit will help you. He will convict you of your sin. Now, some of you don't want to know Him, and so He won't help you. You've got a choice to make. But if you will allow his work to take place in your life, he will, after he convicts you, he, convicts you, he will convince you. Look at verse 10. The one who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. First, the Holy Spirit will witness to you, and then he will witness in you. That's what this verse is saying. He has the witness in himself. Because I believe, because I've come to know by way of experience that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world, I have this witness within myself. And you can argue with me all day long that Jesus is not God, that one doesn't need him for salvation, and you'll never convince me because I have the witness in myself. And a Christian with the Spirit witnessing in his heart is never at the mercy of a man who has an argument in his mouth. Listen, the Bible says, taste and see that the Lord is good. If you were to tell me that apple pie is no good, I wouldn't believe you. Now, I had some this morning. I'm batching it this weekend while my wife and kids are away in Oklahoma. And I know you shouldn't eat apple pie, but that's all I could find this morning. <laughs> My wife usually makes me breakfast on Sunday morning at 6 a.m. But if you were to tell me that apple pie is not good or that there's no such thing as apple pie, I wouldn't believe it. I, like Peter, have believed, and because I have believed, I have come to know by experience that He is the Holy One of God. I have the witness within myself. Now back here in John 7. Here's Peter, makes this incredible confession of faith. And I'm so grateful for these 11 who came to faith. You say 11. 11 out of 20,000, that's nothing. The Lord doesn't need a whole lot to accomplish his work. Of just two disciples in Acts, it says they turned, over the whole, turned upside down the whole world. Doesn't take a lot, just takes the right kind. And you and I are here this morning because of the faithfulness of these 11 men to do precisely what Jesus Christ commanded them to do. So there's the dissension among the curious. There's the dedication of, by the committed. Finally, I want you to see the deception of the condemned. The only mistake that Peter makes in his confession is that he bears witness for the entire group. He uses that pronoun we because he assumes that all the apostles are true, genuine believers. But the Lord knows better. Look at verse 70. Jesus answered them, Did I myself not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. 
you and I never would have picked Judas as the one that he was referring to. The Lord says he takes responsibility that he chose Judas. People ask, was Jesus a, a, ju a bad judge of character? Did he make a mistake? No, he made no mistakes. Jesus never had to apologize to anyone. He never had any weaknesses. He, he never had any strong points because he was a perfectly balanced people. To have a strong point assumes you have a weak point. Jesus was perfect. He was the Son of God. He was a perfect judge of character. The Bible says he doeth all things well. He knew precisely what he was doing when he chose Judas. So you ask, why would he put a crook in the ministry? Why would he allow a dirty double-crosser to represent him? Well, I believe there are at least three reasons. Number one, he wanted to warn us. Number two, he wanted to assure us. And number three, he wants to remind us. Number one, I believe he chose Judas to warn us. He wanted to warn people for all time that it's not enough to have an intellectual knowledge of the Christian faith, that that is no substitute for genuine belief. I mean, here was Judas. Think about this fellow. He had the right associations. He hung with the apostles. He hung with the Lord Jesus. He spent three and a half years at the feet of the master in the best seminary anyone could ever go to. He had the right kind of associations. He had the right kind of reputation. I mean, the very last person in the group that anyone would have thought would have betrayed the Lord was Judas. You say, how can you know that? He held the bag. He was the treasurer. You give the bag to the man who typically has the most integrity. And so at the Last Supper, when the Lord says, one of you is going to betray me, they don't say, oh, we know who it is. It's Judas. No. Not only does he have the right kind of associations and the right kind of reputation, he has the right kind of actions. Outwardly speaking, when the 12 are sent out, he goes out with them. He does good. He ministers to the people. He is involved in healing the sick and casting out demons. Something because the name of Christ is so powerful, even an unbeliever can do, Matthew 7 says. But understand, as Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount, he will say to many who have the right associations, who have the right relationship, who outwardly appear to have the right actions because they identify with evangelical Christianity, he will say, I never knew you, depart from me. Not I once knew you, but I never knew you. Hey, there's a lot of people just like this. Understand that statement, I never knew you. He's not giving it to the different isms of the world to the Hindus and the Buddhists and the Islamic folks. He is giving it to those who profess the Christian faith. I never knew you. Now, God prophesied in the Old Testament the betrayal of Judas, but God understand did not force it to happen. Now, I believe he let it happen as a warning for all time that it is not enough to outwardly profess salvation. But I believe there was another reason. He gave it not just as a warning, but as a point of assurance, as he's later going to show in this gospel. In fact, fast forward for a second, would you, to John 13, the upper room discourse. In this chapter of Scripture, Jesus washes the feet of the disciples. There in an argument, Luke tells us who's the greatest in the kingdom, so Jesus girds himself with a towel and he takes on the role of a servant. Not just to teach them servanthood, though he teaches them that, but he teaches them a more important lesson, and that is how we are to serve. 
that when we serve, we are to serve with clean hearts. And so he will say to Peter, oh, I want to wash your feet. Oh, not just my feet, my whole body. He says, no, once bathed, always bathed. Once you've been saved, you're saved forever. You don't need to get another spiritual bath. But he teaches Peter and the disciples that as you walk through this world, sometimes your feet get dirty. And you need to have your feet clean if you're going to participate, if you're going to fellowship with me, if you're going to serve me effectively. So having done all of that, he says in verse 17, if you know these things, you're blessed if you do them. I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen, but it is that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. From now on, I am telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. Jesus is saying that long ago in the scripture, God said it would happen. And he reminds us that this is being done so that when the scripture is fulfilled, you might indeed believe that I am indeed the true Messiah. Did you realize that Judas preached a wonderful message that Jesus is the Messiah by helping to fulfill one of the 333 prophecies that dealt with the first coming of Christ? You asked, did he have a choice? Of course he did. Was he forced to disobey the Lord Jesus? Of course not. God gave him a choice. God loved him. God wanted him to be saved. You say, then how was it that God prophesied that he didn't have a chance? God didn't prophesy that he didn't have a chance. God just prophesied what he would do. Do you think God would have crippled him and then blamed him for limping? Of course he would not. Listen, you know there are some things that God can't do. We studied that in Hebrews 6. For instance, the Bible says... God cannot lie, Titus 1.15. It is impossible for God to lie, Hebrews 6.18. There's some things God can't do. You know one thing God can't do? You can't teach God anything. God can't learn anything because he knows everything. God knew exactly what Judas was going to do ever before it happened. And the Lord chose him knowing that fully. And he chose him, I think, among other reasons, as these verses indicate, to show that he is the Christ, to show that God is sovereign, that everything is under his control. When the world seems to be coming unglued and we think, oh, there must be an emergency meeting in heaven going on, nothing could be further from the truth. God is sovereign over all of his creation. But there's a third reason that is really highlighted back here in John chapter 7. And it is to remind us, I believe, of the nature of deception. See, the devil promised Judas so much. He thought that somehow he could be happier serving this world than serving the Lord Jesus. And so for the lust of 30 pieces of silver, he made his decision and he rejected the righteous one for the evil one. And then when he realizes what he has done... Not in repentance, but in remorse, because there is a big difference. When he realizes what he has done in remorse, he takes the silver and he throws it at the feet of those elders and those priests, and then he goes out and he hangs himself. He goes to the Valley of Hinnon. He finds a scraggly limb, and with his shaking fingers, he puts that noose around his neck, and he leaps forward, and the rope tightens, 
His breath is gone. His heart stops. But he's still in existence. Oh, he hung there maybe one day, two days, three days. We don't know for sure. But he's dangling there in that rope and the gases begin to fill his body. He begins to bloat. The stench is great. The birds are eating his flesh. And either the limb broke or someone just disgusted with his sight took a, a sword and cut him down. And the Bible says he fell headlong and his guts, bowels popped open wide. Say, good night, Pastor. Why are you telling me that on Sunday morning? <laughs> Sin is never attractive. Sin deceived him. Sin destroyed him. And ultimately, sin damned him. He hung himself to escape the hell that was going on within him. And he only steps forward into another hell that is forever. Utterly deceived by the devil. And it happens when you hear truth and you do nothing with it. The devil is guilty of false advertising. He will promise you so much. Dealt with a couple recently. They called me from another state and they're just broken hearted. How foolish they've been immoral towards each other. They got five kids. Their family has fallen apart. They went after what the world had to offer them, and now they're suffering deeply. And so almost mockingly, you can hear the devil say, Hey, Judas, where's your buddies now? Where's your silver now, Judas? Where's your power now? Let me tell you, friends. He didn't end his life when he hung himself. Jesus said it would have been better for Judas never to have been born because this deceived disciple this morning is in hell. Now, that was not God's desire. That was Judas's choice. God in his grace told us ahead of time to warn us, to assure us, and to remind us of the nature of deception. Now, three lessons as we close from the three kinds of decisions that are made. Number one, I learned that those who reject God's word will reject God's Savior. That's the first lesson I learned from this vast multitude, that those who reject God's word will reject God's Savior. Some of you here this morning, you're battling God's word. You're rationalizing right versus wrong, and you're telling yourself everything's just fine. And you continue to build up these calluses in your heart and you are rejecting God's word. I want to tell you this portion of scripture and as Jesus will show us in the eighth chapter, if you reject God's word, you will ultimately reject God's savior. The parable of the sower, a man went out and he sowed seed, gave the same message to all, but it fell on different kinds of hearts. And because some people rejected God's word, the devil, the Bible says, came and he snatched the seed out of their heart. And then very soberly, Jesus said, so that they may not believe and be saved. You can cross a line for all of eternity when you hear some preacher like me pouring out my heart week after week and you just kind of rationalize it. I'm not going to do anything with it. And you give the devil an opportunity where he can take the seed, snatch it away that you may not believe and be saved. There's a second group, though, and the second lesson I learned is that those who receive the word will receive the Savior. If you receive the word, you'll receive the Savior. You will experience a new birth. With Peter, you'll be able to say, I have come to believe. 
And I've come to know in my experience that Jesus Christ is the Holy One of God. The Spirit will bear witness with your spirit that you're a child of God and you will know the abundant life that Jesus Christ comes to offer. But I learn a third lesson from this man named Judas. Those who choose someone or something over the Lord can be deceived by the devil. If you decide to choose something or someone over the Lord, you open yourself up for deception. Judas knew the truth. He knew Jesus' message. He even went around representing him. But ultimately, he was deceived because he chose power and money and fame over the Lord. You say, well, pastor, I've not received Jesus' words, but neither am I a Judas. Well, you may not be a Judas, but if you've not received Christ, you're in the same category as Judas. See, there's only two categories, the saved and the lost, those who believe, those who don't. You're either in the Simon Peter crowd or you're in this crowd with the multitude and with Judas. And what's the difference? Faith. Whether or not you will respond to God's word. So where are you today? Are you saved? Do you have the witness of the Spirit within you? Why don't you come in faith? Why don't you put your faith where God put your sin? On the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's stand together for prayer. The Bible says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. If you will, the Bible clearly, plainly, wonderfully, simply, gloriously says that God will save you forever. He'll give you a new life. He'll impart the spirit within your bosom. He'll have your name written in the Lamb's book of life. And when you die or if Christ comes back first, he'll take you forever to be with him in heaven. But you must come. You must respond to the word of God. Whosoever will may come. Jesus said, the one who comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. Would you come like a child? For unless you become like a child, you will not enter the kingdom of God. Would you in simple childlike faith say, Lord Jesus, I am a desperate sinner. I cannot possibly save myself. But I thank you that you died on Calvary as my substitute. That you took my punishment. And today, I don't look for a sign. I don't look for a feeling. In simple faith, Lord Jesus, I ask you, save me. And because you have saved me, I ask you to give me the courage to publicly, forthrightly declare you before men. Father, I pray the Spirit of God would help someone today to do that. No one can come to you unless you draw him. So we pray you draw someone today. Father, and for those of us who've met the Savior, help us not to be deceived by the cheap substitutes and the false advertisements of the evil one, but to give ourselves wholly to the one who died and gave himself for us. Help us to grow in your grace, the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus we might increasingly deny worldliness to live holy and righteously and zealously in this present age. And we ask it for the glory of your Son. Amen. If you enjoyed today's message, remember that you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program John 020. 
Remember that you can also support the ministry of Search the Scriptures by calling, or you can give online at searchthescriptures.org. Your generous donation plays an important role in providing biblical teaching and spreading the gospel. We hope that you will join us tomorrow as we continue to Search the Scriptures.